he has a natural conducting talent. You know, you can immediately know is somebody able to lead an orchestra or not. And that is the criteria for a conductor, the talent of leading. And this is what you never learn. You cannot learn that essential something which I cannot describe you. And Michael has that. challenging future ahead of him. He's doing very well. He has already begun to build an impressive list of guest conducting uh, credentials. He's done the uh, Vienna State Opera at one point, and he has just been signed by Beverly Sills to uh, guest conduct, uh, to conduct La Traviata at the uh, New York City Opera. I hear he prefers opera. He yes, he does. It's, it's, it's apparently uh, a much better learning experience to take all of the facets uh, sure. of uh, opera and, and uh, weave them together. That's great. You're over 31 million seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. Our next guest is a mentor, a friend, a truly inspirational figure to artists everywhere. Hailing originally from DC and mentored along the way by figures such as Seiji Ozawa, Leonard Bernstein, and Georg Schulte, Michael Morgan is a legendary conductor and human being. I first met Maestro Morgan when we were introduced by one of my formative mentors several years ago, and we hit it off right away. He brings such an absolute joy to his music making that it is inspiring just to be around. Not to mention his incredible musicality and skill with orchestras and people. In a weird way, I share one of my fondest memories with Maestro Morgan. He had asked me to check balances for him in a dress rehearsal at the Paramount Theater in Oakland with the Oakland Symphony and agreed to drive me home afterwards. When we're together, we always nerd out about so much great music, and he always manages to teach, maybe subconsciously, through his own experiences working with the top musicians on American stages. This continued into the car ride home that night, a dark and rainy night on the freeway in Oakland heading up towards Berkeley. Suddenly, the car directly in front of us spun out because of the rain, and it was a terrifying few moments of near catastrophe. As we were only a few car lengths behind. However, a few strong exhales later, 
we were almost immediately back to laughing over stories from past legends and talking shop over our favorite pieces. Now, I must also mention this. We live in a very divided country, a very divided world. Classical music has a long and sordid history of exclusionism, of elitism, of making people feel out of place based on identity, by what we look like, by our background, by who we are. As much as I've tried to make it my mission to aid in this struggle, to improve our musical community, Michael Morgan has lived this struggle. I'll quote him here. Being a classical musician, being a conductor, being black, being gay, all of these things put you on the outside, and each one puts you a little further out than the last one. You get accustomed to constructing your own world because there are not a lot of clear paths to follow and not a lot of people that are just like you. He has spearheaded numerous community outreach programs with the Oakland Symphony over the years, and most recently has been the face and creative leader of the Currents program with San Francisco Symphony. I absolutely recommend listening, as he gives a tour of so many different cultural communities of the Bay Area and the nation at large. Between the Chicago Symphony, New York Philharmonic, San Francisco Symphony, Washington National Opera, and many, many more top arts organizations all across the country, Michael Morgan continues to inspire. And I consider myself very fortunate to be one of the people whose life he's touched along his own journey. So how's everything? Everything's fine. It's fine. Spent today trying to figure out what brass fanfare could be done, shelter in place. Uh... We were going to do one of the Joan Tower uh, fanfares for the Uncommon Woman, but those require a conductor and and being together. I see. We actually landed on the on the Strauss Vienna Philharmonic fanfare. Ah, oh, very very fun, and it's perfect time of year for it. Yeah, well, this is for the inauguration. We're doing a piece. Oh, really? We're doing a doing an online piece for Kamala Harris because you know it's not often that the of vice course. president comes from Oakland. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> So yeah, we're we're in the process of pulling that together. Wow. So so yes, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. What do you want to talk about today? Well, we've had a hell of a year, my friend. Yes. <laughs> First off, how have you stayed inspired during this COVID nightmare for performing arts everywhere? Um. Well, for a lot of it, I was I was not. It took a long time to get back any sort of motivation when there's no prospect of any sort of uh, any sort of performance but then i started doing other things like you know practicing piano music i would never in a million years play in public uh and so that has sort of taken up my taken up my time and then there's been a lot of planning and replanning and regrouping and all that sort of stuff for when things actually open back up so now there's actually quite a lot to do also because we keep having to push you know you you we weren't planning to do anything before next May anyway. I see. But even that might have to be pushed back. And so coming with contingencies for the contingencies, uh, that's taken up taken up some time. I'm most concerned about my uh, uh, about my in sort of, you know sort of gig musician colleagues. They, they unless they teach, I just don't know where their you know income is coming from. I'm dealing with that myself. Uh, it's 
lots of teaching um and that's basically it for right now um, yeah it's it's stressful and i can definitely relate i mean i'm playing piano music it's the same thing where like you get a month or so at in march april even to may where you, you don't want to touch your instrument you don't want to look at school. do anything yeah yeah may i did a stupid performance i did sati vexation uh took a good 16 hours of my life um but for me it's i've been doing i'm curious to hear what you're what you've been playing because i'm going through the same thing i've been playing the complete keyboard works of louis couperin stuff you maybe shouldn't play on piano well, I actually, as a result of a friend having to, to move from one place to another, I, I actually have a harpsichord here, too. So if I wanted to, oh my I, could, goodness. I could go that way. Uh, the main oh, thing, I'm so jealous. The main thing, the har- this is a harpsichord he built from Kit, and, and I'm going to buy it from him at some point. I mean, it's not like it's a, a world-class instrument, but it gives me two things. First of all, it gives me a harpsichord. We've, I've actually played it in... Uh, we did the Vivaldi through violin concerto on the on the Violins of Hope concert back in uh, February, and I actually used this harpsichord at the on that performance. Oh no way! Um, so that so I mean I've actually played this harpsichord in in, in a public space. God bless. <laughs> I'm not a real piano. I mean p- piano is my instrument, but I'm not a real pianist, and so I'm I'm. Uh, I'm uh, going back and 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 basically working on greatest hits. I am so, so completely enamored of the of how pianistic and natural and how it falls under the hand the music of Chopin is. Yes, it's just amazing how even the, his most difficult things, which I again wouldn't dare play in public, but it's just so natural the way <laughs> the way it fits under one's hand and then when i go to i'm uh, you know we come out of this i i, I want to do a a movement or so it's so, someone's ha- someone a major donor has a new piano and we want at some point to go to his house and play some chair music and so i want to do like a movement or two of the of the of the dvorak quintet and it's just such a actually that's the only time i play piano is in chamber music that's it and no one needs to hear me play no one needs to hear me play chamber <laughs> music but no one absolutely needs to hear me play solo pieces but uh when you go back even to even to Dvorak and you start working on it you realize oh my god this isn't nearly as pianistic as the Chopin is even though the Chopin is much more impressive and 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 you know so to speak harder (laughs) yeah so it's so funny you mentioned that because uh not too long ago I was talking with Jean Eflamme Bavouzet um you know incredible pianist and one one of the topics we were talking about was how do you feel about Chopin being used as a sort of linchpin of piano pedagogy? And he's like, this is perfect because it's so ergonomic. And that's the word. He exactly. Used. Exactly. So, yes. Ergonomics of it. And regarding Dvorak, I have to completely agree though. I, I Dvorak for me is like a guilty pleasure composer. Um, oh, so I, I think, love all of his music. I actually think Dvorak was the equal of Brahms, so I, I'm, it's not a guilty pleasure. He's up there with the, with the very greats. Not every single piece, but then he wrote a lot more music than Brahms. So, um, but uh, he's right up, right up there with Brahms. And so, um, so things like the like the piano quintet are just that's just a masterpiece. 
but oh my god it is not something is not so pianistic <laughs> totally totally but what i was going to say is the doom key trio is yes. actually one of my favorite chamber pieces to play it is so incredibly done stressful as hell for the pianist yes i remember so fun <laughs> <laughs> so uh i want to thank you because we were introduced a while ago by our mutual friend Marika Kuzma. Um, and Marika had told me for like the better part of like six months, like, Stefano, you need to you need to meet up with Michael Morgan. You guys need to talk. You guys need to talk. You have the same vision for education, for this, that. Um, and I wanted to thank you for being this inspirational figure for the Bay Area, which is now my adopted home as it's your adopted home. Um, and I wanted to know if we could start off you have the current series on SF Symphony uh, on the website. It's a fantastic series, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I have really, to, really wonderful. I have to say, we I had some some really world class backup on that. <laughs> the production team and the they loved working with the musicians, and uh, they let me bring some of my friends in as guests, and just, oh, it was just wonderful. So you get to educate and unify. I think these are the two major themes i've sensed in all of our conversations there's always this mentorship not just to musicians like myself and to your colleagues but to communities and to the next generation at large i would say about that i'm passing it forward because of the conductors that have done that for me what, what have you taken away from being so instrumental to music education in oakland well what are the challenges <sighs> The challenges in the, the the biggest challenge in music education in Oakland and everywhere else are uh, is it's not so much finding interested children. It's just that there are so many distractions and so many things pulling at their time that it's very difficult for them to put in the time necessary to really to, to really get good at, at this because they are the most overscheduled generation ever. Uh, and so it's just it's it that part of it is difficult as far as young people are concerned, and then you have to, because of the the the, the problems the, the the lack of music education in public schools now for a generation or so, uh, you have to spend some time um, bringing uh, the, the the adults along. It's 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 whole life education. If I mean, you're always you're always teaching in all directions, and um, I, I you know I, I think we probably talked about this some in the in the in the current series for for SF Symphony, um, that that the, the the music director of a uh, of an urban center like this needs to both lead and follow. You need to be listening for mm -hmm. what is going on out in your community. And you need to bring them along for things you think they should hear. Uh, and it's a mix of these things and not trying not to go too far in one direction or the other that then uh, leaves you with a, a vibrant sort of audience. Definitely. Um, so that's, uh, I mean, that's what it's been. And, and all of it, you know, we all, I'm the, the, the end, uh, probably the end. Yeah, I'm one of the one of the towards the end uh, Bernstein students, and we all got this from him. This notion that you just teach all the time. Conducting is teaching. It's, it, that's your job. It's your job, yes. What was that experience like being the protege 
and having such an incredible mentor as Bernstein and Schulte too? Uh, I, I tell my conducting students, I, every conductor that I've dealt with as a teacher, each one, um, you learn lots of things from them, but with each one, there's a big point that sort of uh, is the overarching thing that you learned from them. And that's, that's everybody. That's Schulte, that's Bernstein, that's Ozawa, that's even Barenboim, who I don't have it musically very much in common with at all. But you, you learn, there's this overarching big things you learn from, from each of them. And you put them together into something that, that, you know, is more or less you by the end of the, by the end of the day. Um, yes. And then the other thing, the, the, and the other thing about landing here in Oakland, um, you, you want to figure out where you are needed. I, at least I do. I think you want to figure out where you are needed, uh, and, and do the work there. That is, uh, find a place that, that where your specific, the things you do, the specific skill sets you have seem to be a match for what's needed in that place. And so you do your things in that place. And I've wound up doing those things here forever now. And you've been, you've guest conducted truly the, the peak orchestras in this country. Most of them, yes. Was there a sort of reluctance to settling down in the Bay Area, not at one of these, uh, you know, the blue chip stock orchestra standards um, oh, the, and creating your is, own home? See, I don't think that I, I just don't think that um, I never looked to, uh, you know, I never really looked to being attached to um one of those uh, big orchestras, at least not as its main conductor, when I was younger, because I just didn't think um, that was the place for younger conductors. Um, and now I've sort of, uh, my generation was sort of caught in between. When we were young and upcoming, um, there were all these giants still in the world, and no one much expected a young conductor to have a whole lot to say. Um, and that's the way it should be, because most of those giants didn't really have a whole lot to say until they got somewhat older. They showed great promise, but then they showed, they had something to say when they got older. And now, of course, we've all gotten older, and everyone wants younger and younger conductors. But that's more of a it's more of a visual thing. They want someone that looks young, and uh, you know that uh, I was talking to someone who was who had who had t talked about the. Um, uh, the appointment of S. Pekka Solnin for San Francisco Symphony. And this particular person was saying that, that he was actually, and this person was completely sold on him now, but that at the time he was everything that they, that they, that they didn't want. He was older. He was um, not American. He was, uh, you know, what do you all all the various things cisgendered white male <laughs> and and they were looking for something something else to come along as the next conductor but i actually have much more admiration for say the chicago symphony who would never hire a child to be their music director never mm -hmm. uh because uh, children don't need to shouldn't be there that's not what that's not a place for a child it's a place for someone who is who is 
long experience and has been able to, uh, who has accrued a lot of experience and uh, has made that turn that I think all of our, um, all of our conducting makes a turn around 50, everybody. Mm. Uh, and you actually start to have something to say as opposed to just knowing how the pieces go. Interesting. And that's, um, that's if you listen, if you listen to performances, even by the most gifted, the greatest of the great, and you compare their performances when they were in their 40s to their performances when they were in their 60s and 70s, it's night and day. Yeah. Uh, because you just, you have, you, you have so much more to say. Uh, you're spending those early years literally figuring out how tab A fits into slot B and just how things, <laughs> how things work. And then you get older and you actually you have opinions about the shaping of pieces and the, and the way pieces should actually should actually go. So <clears throat> I will um, I'll take uh, several examples, a couple of examples, for example, uh, the, the, we um, I had a, had this conversation with Robert Spano years ago. Uh, hmm. Robert Spano and I were at, at Oberlin together. And so we've known each other for a long, long time. Oh, beautiful. But we were both talking in the presence of other young conductors, well, of younger conductors, because we were, we were at the time moving on up, but <laughs> we, were, we were talking about our bad, our first bad Beethoven Ninths. And because um, and, we were saying how the first time you do the Beethoven Ninth, it's going to be bad. I don't care who you are. And so you have to do it a few times before you start to get command of it and actually have something to say so that it's at least your Beethoven ninth and so and not as bad as it was when you first started out and I've been doing the piece my whole life and now it's gotten so it's tolerable another uh, another piece for me that was like that was the Brahms second the other three Brahms symphonies I uh, made peace with much earlier the third being my favorite to conduct I love the and piece. then the, yes. the the fourth and first I also love but the the second was frankly just I think just too sunny to match my personality, and so mm -hmm. I did a lot of really terrible Brahms seconds until I think maybe about four years ago I did a Brahms second at my Gateways Music Festival in Rochester. That was like, I thought, oh my God, that's actually that's a decent Brahms second. Hmm. So that's um, and 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 what the part of the reason that that actually came to be was for, for not just years of having of doing the Brown second, but also more years of playing chamber music and thinking more like a chamber musician when I go to the podium. And that actually yielded a, a much better piece than it had back when I was just kind of vaguely imitating what everybody else did during the Brown second. Uh huh. Well, that that notion of like the silent chamber music partner at the podium you've lived through well being assistant to several different personalities let's say mm -hmm. on the podium how has that transition been to this sort of more more chamber music kind of environment less of the dictatorial maestro kind of vibe and some people are, are still living in that and uh i won't name names but you're free to well, my problem with the whole dictatorial vibe, as you say, is that I just don't like the way the orchestra sounds when the atmosphere is like that in the room. I just think that the sound of the orchestra is not as not as as warm and alive as when 
the conductor is literally first amongst equals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the thing for me. And I'm always telling my students that even when you are conducting, uh, even when you are an adult conducting a high school orchestra or, you know, any, anything that's, anytime you're standing in front of a group of 60, 70 people, you may know more about the given piece than anyone else in the room, but their collective wisdom is still greater than yours mm-hmm. because they are 60 or 70 different people who have had all sorts of different experiences. And so they might not know as much in total about this particular piece, but their collective wisdom is greater than yours. And so you are prepared to shape and you're prepared to guide, but you're also prepared to learn all the time from them. And that makes a, a, a better experience. And I certainly, you know, have had my moments of, of, of coming down on orchestras for various, for one thing or another, or that I thought just was not working as well as it should have at that moment. But most of the time, my standard for orchestras is, do I feel like everyone is doing the best they can? And then I am uh, I'm I'm happy with them because you know as you get to better and better orchestras the best they can gets to be pretty <laughs> gets to be pretty good <laughs> so yeah, um, definitely but that's what you always want you always want everyone doing the best they can and uh, you know ordering people to do things as though uh, as though I have all the answers is not I don't think helpful to things really at all i have a lot of answers but i don't have all of them and i'm first to admit when i don't have an answer not to mention uh i can't remember what some various orchestras at various times i have done something i thought was it was technically not clear given it given a, a not a bad a not good upbeat and stopped and gone yes i would play like that too if i'd gotten that upbeat but they are (laughs) they're generally not used to the conductor admitting that he or she has done something that was less than optimal uh because i've also sat in rehearsals where watched conductors blame orchestras for things that were absolutely the conductor's fault (laughs) no no way it was not the conductor's fault and they're up there screaming at the orchestra. So yeah, okay. So I, I I try not to ever do that. I cannot claim to never have done that. <laughs> it's it's astounding how it happens at all levels, all experience levels, uh, all age brackets. But yeah. Um... Yes. When I was in Chicago, I was I was assistant conductor of Chicago Symphony. I was the principal conductor of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which was the the training orchestra for the Chicago Symphony, the sort of college post youth orchestra kind of orchestra that was uh, they were, they were quite good. They're much better now because they put more money into it. But even back then, they they could be quite good. And then I was also conductor of the Chicago Youth Symphony, which had nothing to do with the Chicago Symphony. We just happened to also be in Chicago. I see. And it was a it was and is a world class youth orchestra it is in fact to me it's the best pure youth orchestra in the country that is to say when you're done with high school you're done there are no got it there are no college people in it there are no conservatory people coming back to play in it it's it's high school period and it is just fantastic from it came um anthony mcgill damari mcgill uh joe johnson who is the principal cello up in toronto and at santa fe opera um 
you know, people like that came through that orchestra while I was there. Uh, so it's it's a it was it was a, a world class youth orchestra. But and so in the course of the seven years I was in Chicago, I would have occasion to play some pieces with all three orchestras at various times. And it's just amazing that the 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 technical hiccups in a piece of music are the same and for the same reasons at all three levels of orchestra. It's just the reaction that's different. Interesting. Because in the in the Chicago Symphony, the there'd be a little bump in the road, which if you, you would have to know what you're listening for to hear that there had been a bump in the road, but there was. Uh, and they can they can, you know, fix it themselves. At the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, well, the bump goes on for a few more bars, and you may have to you, you may have to make some adjustments because they can't they are not as capable of self uh, self repair. And then at the youth orchestra, and again, it's for the same reasons in the same spot. Everything we just break down because they would have no uh, wouldn't have the 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 experience to know how to correct themselves or to look or to correct or to make up for someone else's error. But the reason for whatever the, the blip was, that is a, a transition, a, a, an odd rhythm, a thing that doesn't line up very well, the, the place it happened and the reason for it happening, absolutely the same in all three orchestras. So uh, you learn a lot from that, that, you know, about, first of all, the value of having uh, colleagues who can cover for you as it were <laughs> the way the, the the way the pros can um i've, I've always said that, it, that uh, if every if every conductor would just continue to have some contact with a youth orchestra it would keep them all humble because the the, per, the pros can can fix a whole bunch of the stuff you throw at them uh but the youth orchestra plays right back at you whatever you just did and so if you <laughs> you mess something up it gets messed up and grinds to a halt definitely uh, and that is that is a, a great thing for conductors of i think every level to to remain humble about yeah i completely agree and uh i won't name names again but as you said, you're talking about the children leading these big, giant operations, these giant uh, orchestras, you see a lot of um, a lot of younger conductors, people maybe a, a, a touch older than me, leading these massive institutions that could play just as well without them. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and uh, and with and often quite do. Yeah, it's a lot of times they're just playing. They're playing on on basically autopilot. But the yeah. But the 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 thing I, that concern that I worry about is when I meet some of these younger conductors who have been handed a large orchestra, um, and some of them are, are some of them are very talented and very nice people. And I just uh, my concern is that will they be allowed to grow and remain really nice people? Uh, under these circumstances, or will they have to put up so many walls by the time they get older? You know, again, no one will be able to speak to them, and they will have they will have lost several steps from whatever orchestra they are conducting 
I mean, just there'll be just layers of, of, uh, you know, various grievances and things, uh, if unless they are allowed to, to grow up, to make mistakes, and to still be a reasonably uh, nice person. I'm always amazed when these con when conductors of major major orchestras are really nice people. It, it's very impressive to me. I'm thinking about, for example, um, oh, what is his name, Dosgard in in Seattle, hmm. who is just a lovely, lovely man and a wonderful conductor with a real ear, which is so rare now. Um, and I, I mean, I just think the world of this. I was, I went. I went to see him conduct a concert at the L.A. Chamber Orchestra, and I did not know him. I just I was there because Anthony McGill was playing a solo, and I wanted to say hi to him. Wonderful. Um, but I went to this concert, and the concert started, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a conductor who has an ear for harmony and is really connected with the sound of the orchestra. And uh, I, I, just, I was just so impressed that, that, yeah, the, that the person just clearly had an ear for what he was doing and, and you can tell right away when people are, are hearing what's going on even if uh, you're not always able to, to do anything about it but <laughs> you can tell when people can hear it and, absolutely and, and and have have an opinion about it definitely and you can tell when it's it they're doing uh interpretive dance Versus, like you said, really interacting with the musicians. And yes, the, when they are connected, the when they are connected to the sound, you can really it, it makes all the difference in the world. A conductor that is connected to the sound. Um, yes. What's the repertoire that's being written right now that's really engaging for you? Are there composers who are really exciting for you right now? Because you've done a lot of commissions, you've done a lot of premieres. Who's who's getting you really excited for the next generation of composers? Well, you know, my tastes tend to be pretty uh, pretty not avant-garde and pretty audience friendly, pretty user user friendly, I will say. And so, uh, I tend towards my uh, composer friends who write things that uh, that immediately connect with people and it's not that i don't like other musics and not that i don't like the really i mean i look back fondly on you know for example when you're a student at tanglewood and they're throwing all kinds of contemporary music at you or when i was at uh back when i was in even in chicago there's all kinds of contemporary music coming at you and it's some it's really wonderful but the stuff that stays with me is the stuff that actually seems to connect with audiences so, you know, the concerts that I had postponed from the San Francisco Symphony were opening with uh, works by uh, young uh, African-American uh, composer Carlos Simon. And in a completely unrelated conversation with uh, John Adams the other day, John Adams brought up, was talking about this project that we're doing at the San Francisco Symphony and the Conservatory where we're commissioning uh, black composers for the next 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was saying he w wondered if I had heard of Carlos Simon because he just thought he was the real deal and, and someone that he had great uh, 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 great admiration for. And I was saying that he's one of my favorites right now that he because he really does write in such a way that it connects with people and it's just a joy to play and a joy to hear and it's just it, 
It's great. Beautiful. So, uh, and then uh, I also think about a composer who certainly doesn't need a boost from me, and that's Mason Bates. Oh, certainly. <laughs> He's another one who, who, who certainly connects with audiences all the time. And, you know, I still I take credit all the time. So uh, the first professional orchestra to play one of his pieces on concert was the Oakland Symphony way back in the day. And uh, I just think that I just I just adore that guy. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. And oh, my God. <laughs> he's one of the nicest people ever. <laughs> Seriously. Every time I run into Mason, it's it's just the greatest joy to see him again. I was um, at, I was at some uh, oh Sphinx Connect. It must have been in Detroit. I see. A couple couple years ago. And, uh, you know, Sphinx Sphinx Connect brings together literally everybody that has even the most remote interest in. I mean, it really does bring the classical music world together under the uh, with, with the with a notion towards um, uh the inclusion of black and brown players and composers and 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 conductors and the like so they have this this conference every year uh around the sphinx competition which is a competition for black and latino string players uh, but they have a conference around it and i was at one of the closing events and there for to my complete surprise was mason bates and we were thrilled to see each other because big uh, uh, reception events like that are are not my idea of a good time, nor his. And we saw each other, and all of a sudden, it was a good time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Love Mason Bates, but also then you know I've done um, you know I've certainly done a lot of of John Adams, who also does not need help from me, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> He's going to outlive both gonna, of us gonna, he's, in terms he's of his music. Fine. He's just fine. He and Mason are, are, it's so interesting that the two most played living American composers both are live are connected right here to the Bay Area. Um, and uh, then there's some off the beaten track, uh, you know, in this, 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 this project where I'm commissioning black composers, I was telling the sponsors of it, that they shouldn't overlook people like Adolphus Hale Stork, who is not an emerging composer. He's 70 something and, and a master of what, of, of, of his craft, but he's never had a really, doesn't have as big a career as some of these other people, uh, because classical music is still, you know, there's, there, there's still, uh, hurdles to be gotten over by, by minorities of all sorts. Uh, and, uh, Adolphus, and on top of that, add to that Adolphus's truly bizarre name. I've never asked him where he got where he got, got his name from, but Adolphus Hailstork writes the most incredibly well crafted music, uh, whether it's orchestra music or vocal music, or it, it's just fantastic. You know, another person whose music was like that, who's not with us anymore, is Ollie Wilson. Yes, of course. Who, again, used to be uh, used to be on the faculty here at UC Berkeley, but. Yep. Every time I ever did an Ollie Wilson piece, somewhere in the middle of doing it, you realize this piece is so well crafted. <laughs> it's so and it's well challenging written. music. It's very yeah. difficult music, but it's so well written. Definitely. So, yes. So yes, those are some of the people I really like. But the thing is, I I I am more inclined to try to champion people 
who, for whatever reason, their music is being, uh, I feel like their music is being neglected. Um, so there are composers that I really like that I just don't feel any, any obligation to do because they're being done enough. So there's mm -hmm. not any, mm -hmm. they, they don't lack, they don't go lacking for performances. Uh, on the other hand, if I can find a composer from any era that I feel is unjustly neglected, that becomes what I uh, champion to the extent that I can. Definitely. I mean, we've talked about Florence Price before yes. in that, yes. that sense She's of responsibility. Of what do you think the way forward is? Because, you know, we, we've sort of danced around the topic, but this this very much relates to currents, identity, and its relationship with classical music. And you've had every possible identity outlier possible thrown your way, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. You've been swinging with a weighted bat for a while, let's say. Yes, yeah. Within yeah. this field. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... And a lot of people, including myself, look up to you for having gone through that and not made it the center of who you are. But ultimately, it's because you were always a damn good musician. And, you know, in a year of George Floyd and massive division on the topic of race and terrible things happening at the border and a very monumental election as we open by discussing mm -hmm. uh, what what is our best path forward in addition to because we have now funding thankfully behind composer commissions we have sphinx which is an orchestration uh, is an organization i deeply love i mean aaron dworkin was dean of university of michigan while i was there mm -hmm. incredible organization what what else can we do? What can we boots on the ground do? Well, I've been, to, I've been because of the, the, the COVID period, I've been zoomed in to several universities as the guest speaker. And some of them, I got this question at, at places where you might not expect it. For example, I gave a talk to the orchestra at Chapman University down in, in uh, Orange County. Uh, and they wanted to know what they could do what was their role in in the whole you know black lives matter movement and they they that's an orchestra which i don't know if there are any black kids in that orchestra maybe one or two mm -hmm. but they really were interested in what to do and i was saying to them to because they, they were also asking how to get their teachers who generally don't know any black composers to put to to teach works or to let or have them put works on their recitals uh by by black or women composers yeah and i was saying that they have to do their homework and uh find pieces to champion rather than just saying that there's this genre you want represented on your recital find a piece that you really want to champion and put that on your recital and 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 if necessary if and is maybe necessary teach it you and your teacher will learn it together. Uh, and so it is, it is possible for everyone to just, you know, you don't have to, there's no need to change everything, no need to throw out the, the canon or throw out all the standard rep. It's just to add some other things in from time to time so that there is 
obviously, so you, your institution, or even your solo recital, show an obvious interest in in diverse communities. Uh, and then you don't even have to you don't you, you don't even have to make a speech about it. <laughs> Just put them on on the concert. Um, when I do these concerts where there, you know, these most when I do these concerts that are black or black and Latino orchestras, uh, we all talk about how we just none of us really feels like there's the need for another apprentice program or uh, the, for for because you know uh, diversifying who sits in the orchestra on stage, that's a very very long term process because. There's tenure and people have long careers and you don't want to don't the idea is not to push people out to make room for someone else. It's just to get more people in the pipeline, as it were, coming in through auditions, coming into mm -hmm. into these uh, into these orchestras. And every time we have these conversations amongst ourselves, we talk about how we just do not need another fellowship program, but there are enough. Uh, performers, composers, conductors, soloists, uh, uh, world-class in all, you know, every way. There are enough uh, artists of color that you can hire, just hire some and put them in a concert, in the case of African-Americans, that is not during February and do not um, uh, cram them into something that is supposed to uh, take care of your obligation to that community for the whole year. Yeah. But just drop people in from time to time as soloists or as say soloists, composers, conductors, just drop them in. And everyone sees then that your orchestra is for everybody. You do not have to again, give so many speeches about it. You, you people can see. Uh, one of the great things about the, that we've been talking, as I've been talking to various people, in and around the San Francisco Symphony about the current series is that they are looking forward to doing more things like the current series as an orchestra when we get back to doing, you know, doing things as an orchestra. Um, and I give them credit. They rescheduled my postponed concert right away, uh, which they did not, they did not have to do. And um, so I give I give San Francisco Symphony a, a lot of credit during this period for for throwing out the playbook and looking for new ways to do things. And part of that is with the new uh, with Esopek coming in and he has nothing to prove. So he has all these artistic partners with him. Uh, it automatically show, it automatically demonstrates there's going to be a different way of thinking about how about how this orchestra runs and what this orchestra is open to. Uh, and so uh, that's that's what you do. You don't have to change everything. You don't have to stop playing the Beethoven symphonies. You don't have to stop playing the Brahms symphonies. You don't, you know, uh, my the thing I always say is that the Brahms symphonies are amazing, but there are only four of them. So let's play something else once in a while. Amen. Um, from and that's from all eras i mean i just i've been championing these lost romantic symphonies over here in at the oakland symphony uh we've done several that that uh, um some of them know more than others whether it's the 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 
but the, 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 they just don't get played enough. Uh, whether it's the Second Symphony of of Stenhammer, or whether it's Victor Bendix's Third Symphony, which is incredible and no one ever plays it, uh, or um, we did a we did a, a symphony of Louise Ferranc on one of our concerts, and she is just as a, as a conductor colleague of mine said, she is just criminally underplayed. There's symphonies, there's chamber music, there's lots of music from from her, and she's a you know transitional early romantic uh, composer uh, who is just the, the music is, is immediately. Uh, connects with an audience there's not any there's no selling to do uh, but it's just a lot of these things happen because you know uh, uh, fall into the cracks because you know uh Frank was a woman victor bendix was a, a a belgian jew uh people have these things that sort of send them onto sort of a side track and they never make it back into onto the main track this is also a problem, I think, with the training of American conductors, for that matter, is that many of them get put on a side on a on a spur line, and uh, and and in in when they reach that point where they have gotten actually quite good at at, at what they do, we're still importing uh, less interesting conductors from other countries. To do things, mm -hmm. and the and these days I, I don't see the point. Americans are not that impressed with the fact that you how far your conductor, how far away your conductor came from. Uh, they are more impressed with is the concert any good. Uh, so that, that's there's really a, a, something to be said for for that. Uh, not to mention the American conductors can be so media savvy and and in these days when uh when all of our orchestras and opera companies are trying to drum up more audience uh it's, it's not a bad deal to have people who are who have some media savvy about them uh in addition to being uh, good musicians definitely the, the game has changed in so many ways well one hopes i hope it's changed and i and i really do think that after we come out of this COVID period we cannot cannot go back to what we were doing before uh without any yeah, i mean just go back to what we were exactly what we were doing before we were rotting um, in this museum for so yeah, long exactly well the uh the thing is i i and i've said this i think in every interview i've done since the covid shutdown came that when the uh covid uh, when the sorry when um the when the floyd murder happened you could go to every orchestra's website and there was a Black Lives Matter banner across their website, everybody, because orchestras are generally fairly liberal places anyway. Um, and even if they are in conservative towns or supported by conservative donors, the orchestra itself is usually a fairly liberal organization. But your Black Lives Matter banner doesn't matter if there are no if, if, if you look through the season and the season say, doesn't say anything, doesn't in any way reflect the notion of black or brown lives mattering. And, you know, the George Floyd murder was in the Twin Cities. And I looked over, you know, I looked over the orchestras of the Twin Cities to see what, the, and they had Black Lives Matter. Yes, they did. But then when you look through the season, no composers, no conductors, no soloists. 
And so, you know, maybe one, maybe one composer, maybe a George Walker lyric for strings, which is completely, it's a lovely little piece, but it has nothing whatever to do with, with most of what George Walker wrote. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or they have, uh, uh, so in the case of one orchestra, they had a, a, a vocalist on a sort of semi or semi-classical or headed over into Pops concert. But that was it. And if, you, if that's it, then, you know, black lives don't matter because they, that, what matters is what you're putting on your stage. That that's your demonstration of what matters. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm hoping that we've we're coming out of that now, and we are uh, looking to 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 fix that. Um, yes. There's one Twin Cities organization I do want to plug: um, Lakes Area Music Festival. Um, we were supposed to do Flying Dutchman this summer, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously that didn't happen. So what they did is they flew all of us in to do a series of recitals, um, chamber music. I accompanied all the singers and we had opera stars, but there were two recitals I really loved. It was me and Deshaun Burton. And Deshaun is this incredible human being and musician. One of the recitals was a mixture of Dichterliebe Florence Price art songs and the three dream portraits of Margaret Bonds, mm -hmm. all in all movements interspersed. Okay. And I think, I think that's or an organization putting their money where their mouth is. That is, if they put allowed that to go on, absolutely. I think we in the Bay Area have this sort of, um, we have the privilege of a really open-minded audience base, right? Very much so. We're very, very lucky here, and I don't for a moment expect it any, almost anywhere else. Is that collective voice, like we mentioned before, within orchestras, like no young conductor is going to have the, the collective wisdom of the organization, of the orchestra in front of them, right? Right. What lessons have you learned from the collective wisdom of the community in Oakland? Hmm. Well, what you learn mostly is not to get too far out ahead of them. Ahead of them, yes, but, but if you get too far out ahead of them, you know, there's you, you realize there's not anyone behind you. And so, uh, you know, you go out on various limbs and uh, and then you realize, oh, this is a little bit too far. I haven't brought them along enough for for this. And then the other thing is that even though we are in a in a in a bubble here in the Bay Area, and even though most of my audience is sort of the left wing of the left wing, um, I mean most of the people I know around here who are who call themselves Republicans would be, um, you know, conservative Democrats anywhere else. <laughs> uh, but even so. Uh, one will notice, especially in my, in my, well, not just my spoken messages, even my written messages uh, to my community, that even in this bubble, most of what I have to say is between the lines. It is not, uh, it, 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 it is not really overt what I say. Um, because, the, because there is, there is in fact a range of beliefs in, in that crowd in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to bring along as many people as possible with the notion that uh, I certainly would like to 
convert more people to my way of thinking. But uh, in order to do that, I have to get them, they have to feel comfortable listening to me in the first place. So I try not to get too far out uh, ahead of them in that, uh, in that regard. So that's part of the listening I was talking about, the, the leading and following at the same time. Definitely. Um, and that's the main thing I get from my community. It's just you, 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 and you have to constantly check in with them for when you've gone too far, and and sometimes they'll surprise you that you've done you do something that you didn't think they were going to go for, but they do. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's always uh, rewarding. I want to talk a little shop with you. Sure. So we've mentioned Brahms a couple times. Mm -hmm. um, and I've asked a similar question to everybody who's come on, whatever their artistic expertise is. Mm -hmm. So Brahms, Dvorak, we've talked a lot about the romantics. What? How would you distill romantic music? What is romantic music to you? What is the romantic period? <laughs> Um, we're still tonal. We haven't moved away from tonality yet, but to my mind, we're thinking in bigger and bigger, uh, phrases, thoughts, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bigger sweep in the pieces, uh, it's still, and still staying in that common practice, uh, tonality. That's going to be true of, of I think any romantic piece, whereas it won't be true of many that come before or after. Um, and I, I, I have described the just the notion of being expressive in this way. The in the Baroque period, they could in the music in the in the, the music of Bach. There's there's sometimes tremendous expression in within two notes two notes just enormously expressive by the time you get to the classical period you need a phrase in order to be that to be to, to equal the expression of those two notes in the baroque you get to the romantic you need sometimes an entire movement to, to mm -hmm. be that expressive. You, in any case, need pages and pages. And you, in the, in the, in post-romantic, in the, not post-romantic, but in contemporary music, you've, you sort of have abandoned that, that sort of aesthetic goal. And sometimes there are those big sweeping ideas like that. But, uh, but a lot of the time the pieces are more I think are better appreciated as worlds unto themselves that you step off into. I've never understood why people have such a hard time with 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 uh, with contemporary music because it's it's a it's just a matter of letting go and just going into this planet that this person has has created uh, that did not exist before. Whereas in the previous, in the earlier periods, Baroque, Classical, Romantic, 
people are reorganizing and reorganizing things that are recognizable to you. Uh, there are and there are cliches and there are things that you expect to have happen, that sort of thing. You get the contemporary music, and some of the most interesting of it of it is music where you just have to you just have to give yourself over to a different sound world, and and just swim in that. If you just swim in that, then you can actually enjoy um, music that you don't quote unquote understand. Um, so yeah, the romantic large sweeping ideas that sort of take all those things we learned about in, in the Baroque and the classical and uh, just expand upon them. So you need, you know, uh, to do that same, that same expression that Bach did in two notes, that, you know, Wagner needs like an act of opera. So um, both are great. That's oh, both are absolutely great. That's the thing. It's all absolutely great. It's just a different way of 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 expressing things, and I just I find there's so much of the Baroque I find so incredibly moving. At the same time, so much of the post romantic that's just really thrilling, really moving. Also, it just takes much longer to to uh, to, to to get where it wants to go. Development over exposition. Yeah, but as I say in the Baroque, it's really it's sometimes it's as much as it's just a, just a turn of two notes. It's just it's just an appoggiatura and the main note, and it's already you already have more expression than you do in this whole. I mean, that was part of the thing about the classical period is that people were 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 trying to 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 bring some logic back to music rather than all this exp passionate mm -hmm. expression that there had been in the Baroque. <laughs> yeah, the rationality, yeah, exactly rationality. <laughs> enlightenment principles quote-unquote an orchestra is a weird thing it's this community it's you know, we've talked already a lot today about the orchestra's place in the community mm -hmm. but now let's talk about the the nitty-gritty of orchestras and how they're run mm -hmm. so a board is an important thing to the organization it's it's Having, actually their orchestra the, the orchestra actually yeah. belongs to the board how how does that relationship work? You, you know, you've been a music director in Oakland for is this thirty years 30 this years. year? Thirty years. God bless. Yes, thirty. God years. bless. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, in the in my case, what's most important is that I have a um, I have a board that is that supports my vision for for what an orchestra should should do, or what an orchestra should be. And that's really that's it. If the if the conductor and the and the or and the board are in sync about what the orchestra should be, then you might have some success. It's still an impossible business model, terrible business model orchestras. So your the odds are against you basically, no matter what, unless you are a really old moneyed orchestra with some huge endowment that you can sit on. Uh, but uh, and that's the case with hardly anyone anymore. In any case, because the business model is so bad, you have to have a board that is that backs up your your vision for what the orchestra uh, what the orchestra should be, um, and then you deal with the psychology of the the of, of bringing that to bringing uh, psychology of the players, and then the psych and then bringing all of that to the public. 
is there ever curiosity from audience members uh, that you've seen, you know, to see how the sausage gets made? Is there any uh, is there any interest in maybe having some sort of community member uh, regular presence at boards? Is that a, a thing in our future for the to well, make the thing is better most, integration? Yeah, most boards have community members on them. Certainly, the ones that are are, I mean, you you have to make sometimes exceptions in terms of the. The, the fundraising aspect of a board, mm-hmm, the buy-in. Sometimes you sometimes you make exceptions for people because they bring so much wisdom about the community with them. Uh, so I think every board should have some community member, and I think most of them I've seen do. They have some some members on the board who are not just all about the money or all about their the uh, uh, raising money from others, but they bring uh, a, a knowledge base about the community itself. And helping the orchestra to to fit into its community better, so that I think that's essential to have community members. I also like the idea of having some players on the board of an orchestra, so that they thank you, so that they have some idea where it, 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 it's. A, I think it's more important in the in the small orchestras even than it is in the bigger ones, so that they see both where the money comes from and how much of it there isn't. <laughs> Uh, totally. That was going to be my next question. So thank you. Yeah. So they're, um, they're not. Uh, there's that that business in most places of people thinking that large piles of money are being hidden from them somehow, uh, when in fact, again, it's such a hu- horrible business model that mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm constantly trying to remind people that the people on your board they have lives of their own. They could very easily go back to those lives and be totally happy in fact they are losing money for being on your board so you have to have an appreciation for that all the time that and as i tell my again my well not just my conducting students but i tell players i tell anyone who listened that in the in the classical music business basically pretty much anytime you set foot on a stage someone is losing money somewhere we do hardly anything that even breaks even and even less that turns a profit um, because it's just not, it's just too expensive for an art form. You'd have to charge ridiculous amounts of money per ticket in order for it to pay for itself. So bear in mind that when you're on stage, people are losing money and, uh, and you, know, you need to have some patience about that. Is there a, a format shift that might ease the financial burden once we get well, once we get out of COVID, right, you have all of this digital programming mm-hmm. that's happening. Are there any creative performance models that once we go back to larger orchestra format, do you think the standard subscription series might be altered? How we program, what we program, what the length of things might be, more interactive oh, I think audience that, things? I, I think to the extent that I think to the extent that players' contracts allow you know, organizations to experiment that way, they will and they should. Uh, the issue is that most people are locked into contracts where uh, certain things cost a certain amount, whether they are, um, you know, that not that many orchestras have sort of a, uh, even a, a, a price range that will allow you I'm thinking now about the small small orchestras, particularly per service, that will allow you to do something shorter at a, a different time and maybe not pay as much as you do for your subscription main stage concerts. 
there's generally a sort of a one size fits all in terms of what a service costs. Mm -hmm. And orchestras are working more flexibility about that into their contracts. But until there's more of that, it's very difficult for orchestras to really experiment. You know, if orchestras, if you're pulling together an orchestra to do rehearsals and, and put on a concert, and the amount it costs you is the same whether you do a one hour concert or a two and a half hour concert, which is the standard sort of two and a half hours about, uh, doing experimental one hour concerts or an experimental half hour concert is, is not fiscally reasonable. Mm -hmm. So the, until there's more flexibility in contracts, um, which it requires a lot, it requires, I mean, it really requires players to go out on a limb and trust management, which some, in some cases they have learned through experience or experience that not, to, not to trust management. And sometimes they're not trusting management that's long gone. I mean, most everybody has, uh, stuff in their in their collective bargaining agreements that came from having to deal with some management four managers ago yeah it isn't even true anymore but you're still laboring under that uh you're laboring under that uh limitation uh in the contract because it got in and it never came back out so th and that th ties back to what you were saying about having an orchestra member on the board Reducing that confrontational attitude. Yes, that's what you want to try to do. Although I found that sometimes orchestra members on the board hear what they want to hear and don't hear what they don't want to hear. Um, and so it's it, it. Sometimes I feel like some of them, not all of them, but sometimes you feel like if, you know they bring up things and you wonder were they at the board meeting or did they not hear what we were talking about before. <laughs> um, I think that applies to a lot of people in of course it does. every context. Of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does, and orchestras of every size. But, um, and I understand that the players' hostility sometimes to management because some of them have been really worked over by various managements in their Definitely. during their lives. So I understand that. So it's very hard to to have that to have that trust go out from them. But we're at the point now where a lot of these things are existential threats to to just the survival of orchestras more flexibility, more diversity. Diversity is an existential threat to orchestras. If they don't get to be more diverse, cities are gonna care less and less about them and eventually they would have to close down because they don't have the support of the community around them. Definitely. So there's there's a lot of flexibility that's got to, got to be built into the, into the programs, but easy for me to say I'm a conductor and so I don't have as many, I don't have as many uh, different orchestra contracts to deal with, like a players do who are in my orchestra. Uh, and I don't have the long history of, of, you know, sometimes adversarial relationships with management that orchestras, people who, who've been in orchestras a long time have. So I totally understand that, it, that a lot of this falls under, under the heading easy enough for him to say. But if you, uh, but if if any progress is going to be made, some, some something's got to give. Definitely. So now I have to ask: outside of music, or outside of classical music, let's say whatever classical music is, 
um, what do you listen to? What kind of other art really inspires you? Any artists come to mind, books you've read recently, poetry? Well, I don't, unfortunately, read a lot of fiction. I just never have. So, you know, the, 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 I mean, I'm making my way through things like a Florence Price biography right now. And, uh, and generally, I'm reading books of history uh, but because I, I just, and I don't know why, because at the times, the few times when I actually have gone off and read some uh, fiction of various sorts, or the classic fiction or something newer, I, I, I've enjoyed it. But for whatever reason, I just gravitate towards nonfiction. Uh, music, I tend absolutely not to listen to classical music unless it's something I'm working on or something I'm wanting to familiarize myself with, with the intention of my work on it at some point, because I can't listen passively to classical music. Yes, so, definitely. So when I want music in the background, it's it's pop music, it's country music, it's uh, it's not even jazz because jazz requires active listening also. Um, but it tends to be lighter, poppier stuff that I listen to when I'm not work, if I'm doing other things and I want music in the background, which I rarely do anyway. You know, honestly, besides apart from the computer and I suppose the television, you could say. There's no, uh, there, there's no electronic means of reproducing music in this in my house. There's nothing. Interesting. I mean, you did have to get headphones for I this interview. I had to get headphones for this interview because I had been, I had, um, uh, I had been doing things with another, doing things from my phone, with uh, with a different wireless headset sometimes. Uh, but I didn't have one that was that was paired with this computer or would pair with this computer. And gotcha. so I needed, to get it. I needed to get one for that, which I'd been needing to do anyway. So I was very happy to, to solve this problem. <laughs> <laughs> Gave you an excuse. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned not reading a lot of fiction. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pose a question to you. And this might sound stupid at first, but humor me mm -hmm. if you may. Is music fiction or nonfiction for you? It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, for me, music is the music that, that that most matters to me. The orchestral music that most that matters to me, whether from whatever period. Um, it's a thing. It's not. It's not fiction. It is act, It actually exists the way history is a thing. So. I certainly don't think of it as as fiction, although I've certainly recognized the fact that it is ephemeral. So that I, mean, I recognize that, but the but still, um, the music that, that that most matters to me is so impactful and stays with you for so long. It really uh, it stays with you longer than any appliance you could buy or any other thing you could you could own so i have to say i i have to think of i think of it as a thing and and that's the difference between it and other lighter forms of music which don't so much stay with you they just float over you until the next um, one comes along till the next one comes that's right but some of it just stays with you and you know as i tell my uh, tell my conducting students there's repertory uh, that 
someone should be able to shake you awake in a from a sound sleep at at three in the morning, and you could walk onto a podium and conduct, uh, you know, this, this, this from especially the standard repertory. There are a lot of pieces that are like that. They just they should just be ready to go. It shouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, open the score or not before you go to the <laughs> to the rehearsal, because yep. you live with them all the time. And I also find that once you do these standard repertory pieces and they're you've learned them and they're in there, they are your subconscious is working on them all the time so that when you bring them back, they are in fact better than they were the last time you sort of consciously looked at them. And that's how your Brahms or Beethoven symphonies get better without you even understanding necessarily why they're better than they used to be. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, every time I've come back to a Beethoven symphony, it's like, oh, why did I think that then? Or, oh, now I finally understand this. And same thing for Brahms. Brahms oh, yeah. especially. You see things, you see things that you, so many you, different levels. Yeah, you see things that you just didn't see before. I mean, I did, I, I've done that uh, many times. I did a, did a, did a, I'm always telling people, I, I did a, did a uh, uh, Mendelssohn Scotch symphony with the Hollywood, at, at Hollywood Bowl with L.A. Phil some years ago. And then I went back. I didn't do that piece again for years and years. And I went back and look, just looked through it and went, oh, my God, that must have been so horrible. Oh, come because on. Now I see all these things that I did not see in the piece before. Oh, I'm perfectly, okay, perfectly willing to admit something I did was horrible. Because one does things that are horrible, and you get better as you go along. That's kind of the point of... of trying to live longer is that you get better at stuff but uh i really i just felt so terrible for whoever had to sit through that performance before uh and now i just love doing the piece because of all the stuff that i see now that i did not see then because it was i was doing the piece for the first time back then you know what piece really got me into mendelssohn lopkesang because i was never the biggest fan of the symphonies but then number two lopkesang studying that piece changed my whole conception of him as a composer well you know i never i i, I mean I, i've actually never never really studied Loeb song although i have certainly you know heard it and i just haven't really studied it but uh in that same sort of vein although it's not a symphony is the piece that changed my relationship to Mendelssohn with elijah because totally. i was i was i was the lowly assistant conductor at the st louis symphony <laughs> and the uh, and I was it was towards the end of a season. I was only there one season. I was not happy in St. Louis. That, that was more at least there was a lot more about the town than anything else at the time. I just wasn't very happy there. Uh, but I just uh, I was it was towards the end of a season, and the season was winding down. And I was about it was about time for me to head back to Washington because I wasn't going to stay in St. Louis during the summer. And uh, we had this Mendelssohn Elijah coming up, and I was like, oh, God, we have to get through this hours and hours of Mendelssohn Elijah. But the, the absolutely magical and very much missed Robert Shaw was conducting this Elijah. And I was the assistant on that week, and I was with him a lot during that week, and he had 
showing me what he what why he loved the piece and what he loved about the piece and watching him put it together and and of course he was the greatest choral conductor that ever lived so watching him prepare the chorus um i came away just thinking that it was just a life-changing experience with mendelssohn elijah and that was that was mendelssohn but it was also robert shaw beautiful 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 well I don't want to take up your whole afternoon on this <laughs> muggy Saturday, but thank you so much. This is such a joy to catch up to. It's my pleasure. And anytime you want to talk or want to go into some other subject, I'm totally happy to do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back on, hopefully sometime soon. Excellent. Just let me know. Each work of art, each artist, each person, is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there. Don't you dare go anywhere yet. We've had a cathartic week. We've inaugurated a new president, and vice president we've begun the purge of all of the detritus left on our systems of government this didn't happen in a vacuum this happened because of grassroots organizations working to make sure that every american voice is heard this month we face the possibility of the elimination of our government as we discussed in this episode the unfortunate reality is that arts organizations are businesses and you can vote with your dollar. You can vote with your ticket fees. Take a look at how many arts organizations in your community have buildings, centers, funds named after top contributors to the instigator of the riots and insurrection on January 6th. Conservative, liberal, leftist, we're all here. Art is for all of us, but our society is not theirs to tear down. And as we come out of COVID, let's build our arts organizations back better. Let's get seditious money out of our arts organizations. And again, this isn't about conservative or liberal or leftist or anything in between when an entire group of people is threatening and killing to silence your vote, to silence your voice. No voice can sing. Let's stop paying attention, paying ticket fees to the organizations whose boards are working to silence you, to silence me, to silence all of our brothers and sisters around the world. We know who you are, and no matter how many platitudes you post on Instagram, when we're back out of COVID, we won't be back in your opera house. <laughs>